Well, the passage for today's lesson, which is Matthew 10, verses 24 to 42, is the, the passage, the, the most concentrated passage in all of the New Testament on the subject of discipleship. The Lord wanted to make sure that those who would help to establish his church, and who would they be? The apostles, with a capital A, those who would establish his church, be the foundation for his church, and also those who would continue to grow and maintain his church, which would be all of his disciples on down through the ages of history, that they would be people who would understand the cost of discipleship and were willing, no matter what, to serve him faithfully and to serve him wholeheartedly until the end. He believed in preparing his warriors up front about the true nature and the true expectation of discipleship. As we mentioned in last week's lesson, he understood that to be forewarned is to be what? Forearmed. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Therefore, he presented not only the blessings of following him in discipleship. What is discipleship? We'll talk about that in a minute. It's being a learner of Christ. But he he not only presented all the blessings of discipleship, but he also talked about the bruises that came with the blessings. And he not only gave all the great promises, but he presented them along with some of the great persecution that would come to the disciple. He told of the rewards, but he also spoke about the rejection. And that rejection, remember, last week we learned, would come from three primary sources out there in the den of wolves. Religion, rulers, or government, and the worst one for us personally, from relatives. You see, Jesus Christ is not interested in would-be disciples, those who only want the blessings and the benefits of his kingdom and are not willing to accept the submission and the sacrifice that accompany true discipleship. He's not overly interested in would-be disciples. He had one named Judas. He was only interested in the benefits and the blessings, wasn't he? But when it came down to submission and sacrifice, he wasn't interested. Discipleship is the key task of the church. And we know this to be true by the Lord's last commandment to his followers before he then ascended up into heaven. Remember what he said in the Great Commission? Go ye therefore and what? Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And then what did he say again? teaching them twice he says he talked about teaching in the great commission he said teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you that's found in matthew 28 verses 19 20 why do you think that the lord jesus christ spent most of his three and a half years of ministry teaching 12 men it was so that they would become spiritually equipped and mature enough so that After his departure, they could then go out and reproduce themselves. They were to advance his kingdom by doing what? As they had been taught, they were to go out and teach others to be disciples or learners of him. Ephesians 4.12 tells us that the work of the ministry is to be perfecting, which means maturing the saints. 
how do the saints become mature? How do they become Christ-like? How? By being taught, by being disciples, by learning the word of God. You see, salvation is totally free, isn't it? It's a free gift of God to be saved. Salvation is free. All we have to do is accept the gift. It's a gift of God. However, on the other hand, discipleship is not free. Discipleship has a cost. The church has always had those who would come to Christ in free salvation. But few look around the room. In the county we live in, this room could be packed out, couldn't it? If people were more interested, if all those who follow Christ and say they are Christians, because it's free, if they were willing to pay the price of discipleship. You see, it costs something to be a learner, doesn't it? You had to give up your Monday morning to be here, didn't you? Salvation is free, but there is a cost to discipleship. There's lots of people who will willingly take on Jesus Christ as their fire insurance from hell. But there are not so many who are willing to endure some of the fiery trials for his name's sake while they are here on earth serving him. Discipleship, you see, involves more than evangelism, which is leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's only the beginning. Evangelism is only the beginning. Once people are saved, the next thing they need to do is be in the Word. Then they need to be taught the Word of God because you just cannot grow without it. This was a problem in my life. I was led to the Lord by some people back in 1972, and then I didn't see those people again because they didn't live anywhere near me, and I wasn't discipled for eight years. I did not grow. I didn't know diddly squat about the Bible. I didn't grow, and so what did I do? If you're not going forward, you're not standing still. I was going backwards. Discipleship is so important. We cannot grow without it. As newborn babes, we are to desire the milk of the word. As a, if you're a new Christian, the, the word of God is your milk. How, what does a baby desire more than anything? Milk. We are to desire the milk of the word. And then eventually the child starts wanting some meat. My grandson loves meat. So you go into the meat of the word. The, the, the word is our meat. And then, and bread. Well, it should be bread next. First from milk to bread and then to meat. And that's what this, disciple, this uh, discipleship class is all about. Some of you are just still sucking on the milk and you can't quite get the bread yet. It's maybe a little bit too, too involved for your, your um, stomach or whatever. You can't digest it yet. But don't worry about it. Keep sipping on the milk and getting what you can. You'll advance eventually into the bread. And pretty soon after that, if you stick it out, you'll be into the meat. And you just want to dig deeper and deeper and get down to the, you know, the good steak of the word. All believers are to be learners of Christ, but not all believers are our learners. We have, as we've talked about before, we have many in our churches who are absolutely biblically illiterate. They're not being discipled, and many of them are not interested in being discipled. Remember the Lord's invitation of Matthew eleven twenty nine, where he said, Take my yoke upon you and what? Learn of me. Did you know that being a student in this Bible study here 
on Monday mornings is not something that you need to pray about. Did you know that? You are perfectly, perfectly in the center of God's will to be here studying about Jesus Christ. And I don't know where you could go, to be quite frank, which my husband loves that saying. (laughs) I don't know where you could go to be more in the will of God than right here. Where else can you go to a Bible study where you are learning of Christ for about eight or nine or ten years of your life? Every single jot and tittle of his life, everything he said, everything he did. I don't know of another Bible study that would spend that much time. But we are being totally obedient to his command in doing that. He said, learn of me. And that's exactly what we are doing. So you don't need to pray about being here. You are in the center of God's will being here and studying about Jesus Christ. And then, of course, as we are obedient to be disciples of Christ, we are also then, to whom much is given, much is required, we are then to also be about the task of discipleship. You see, every true disciple or learner of Jesus Christ will be involved, should be involved somehow in the task of discipling others right? So I hope and I pray that what you are learning here about Christ, you are passing on to others. You know, those of you who have children in the home, husbands in the home, maybe you have a Sunday school class, whatever, wherever, I hope that you are not only being a disciple, but that you are involved in discipleship yourself. And you have nothing to give to others if you, you know, you can't run on a dead battery. You got to be learning and filling yourself up if you're going to give it out. And your children, mothers, young mothers of young children, nothing, they need more. They, they don't need you to spend your time running them to ballet or piano lessons or this and that more than. Those are okay, but there's nothing they need more than you filling up your tank on the Word of God. You have nothing to give them spiritually if you yourself are not being filled up. That's so important. You know, the Lord Jesus encountered many would-be disciples during his earthly ministry. Once, remember, a certain scribe came to him and he said, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But we have no record that he did, whoever this guy was, because he then heard the Lord speak about a hardship. Jesus warned the scribe. Remember, he said, foxes have holes and the birds of the air... He's always talking about animals, isn't he? Foxes and birds. The birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He heard about a hardship. That scribe heard about a hardship. I might not have a place to sleep every night. And so we never heard about him again. That's not to say he wasn't saved. He believed in who Jesus was. He just wasn't willing to be a disciple, a follower, and a learner. On another occasion, a would-be disciple said that he wanted to follow Jesus, but first of all, He had to go home and do what? Bury. He had to go home and bury his father. Now, the only problem, that sounds, you know, all of us say, well, of course. Your daddy died. You got to go home and bury him. The problem was his father hadn't died yet. They buried people the very same day they died back then. His father had not died yet. What he wanted to do was make sure that he, he waited around until his father died so that he got his rightful inheritance and perhaps even had time to enjoy that inheritance and spend it before he then 
would follow Jesus. You know, it's like those who want to wait until they get older. Have you ever met young people that they don't want to really get too serious about Jesus yet? Because it might spoil some of their fun, you know? And they'll, they'll wait until they're older. You know, I'll wait till I'm Mrs. Caldwell's age, and then, you know, when I can't have fun in life anymore, <laughs> then I'll start taking things serious. And uh, you know what happens? When you get to the age where you think you're finally going to get a disciple, sometimes you just don't be a disciple. You don't have the, you might be sick. God might have other plans. He might say, thou fool, you know, or you might be so sick you can't be involved in ministry. You don't know. You can't put off to the future. And, and the Lord wants your whole life, and it's so much better to come to him when you're young. All right, got to be careful not to get off onto rabbit trails. My husband listened to the tape. He said, man, you're becoming a preacher more than a teacher. I said, ugh. <laughs> so excuse me for doing that. Another man said uh, that he would fo- he, before he would follow Jesus, he na- needed to take care of some of his uh, family responsibilities. But who is ever finished with taking care of family responsibilities. First of all, you know, you might make the excuse, well, I have young children. Let me take care of my young children, and then I'll get involved in the Lord's work, or then I'll become a disciple, then I'll be a learner. But pretty soon, you know, your children are teenagers, and that even takes more energy, believe it or not, than when they were little kids. And, and then, then maybe you finally get your kids out of the house, and you have your husband to take care of. He might get sick, or, you know... I've heard those people that have dropped out because they've got a sick husband. I understand that they need to take care of their husband. But then uh, you have your parents, and you have to take care of your parents. And then you have grandchildren. And by the time you're finished with family responsibilities, guess what? You might be in a nursing home or six feet under or need somebody taking care of you. We never finish with family responsibilities, do we? We never do. If you wait till then, it will be too late because somebody will be taking care of you. (laughs) The Lord answered that particular would-be disciple, the one who said, well, let me take care of family responsibilities first, saying, he said to him, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see, this was the problem with Lot's wife. Remember her? She looked back, didn't she? She looked back to the cares, the concerns, the comforts of this world represented by Sodom. She didn't want to give up so much. And in trying to hold on, she lost everything, didn't she? She lost it all. The Lord doesn't want our interest to be focused on the cares and the concerns and the riches and the houses and the things and the concerns of this world. He doesn't want our second focus. You know, sometimes when I pray before we get into our lesson that our focus would be on him. He doesn't want our second best. He wants our first focus. We're to seek first what? His kingdom. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all the other things will fall into place. Trust him. By faith, do it. You will be amazed. Yeah, maybe you had to get up this morning, come to Bible study before you had a chance to wash the dishes and make your bed. Doesn't matter. All the, all the other things will fall into place if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. He doesn't want fence sitters. Churches are full of fence sitters. They want to sit on the fence between the church and the world. He doesn't want lukewarm commitment. 
He doesn't want double-minded disciples. He wants those who are willing to single-mindedly focus on obedience and service to him regardless of the cost. And this is the kind of commitment that he is looking for today, more than ever. He is looking for that kind of commitment from you and from me. Let your children, especially you young mothers, let your children see you studying God's word. Don't, I've said this before and I'll say it again, don't wait until they're in bed before they see you with your Bible open and your book open and doing some homework. Even if you can't think hardly with them running around circles or crying or whatever, let them see that you're trying to be in God's word. Let them see your commitment to Christ. Do you know how important a godly mother is? Do you want to raise godly children? Do you want your children to know the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart, love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? You do, don't you? Yeah, I know you do, or you wouldn't be here. Then be a godly mother. The, the mother, the father is important, yes, but the mother is key for the children. She needs to be godly before her children. And they need to see your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to see that you love this book and that you love being with God's people and that it is first and foremost and that no matter what the cost, you are committed to Jesus Christ. I know it's hard sometimes without a a husband to support you, but you can do it. You can do it alone. I was, I was married to an unsaved man for five and a half years. And he eventually saw the commitment. You can win over your unsaved husband. That husband, by the name way, was named Frank. It wasn't a former husband. It was the same one. <laughs> All right. So anyway, uh, there is a cost to being a disciple. But it is nothing compared to the rewards and the blessings that you receive from being a disciple. It is nothing. The rewards are abundantly there for you, for your family, for all of eternity. All right, we're going to look at this third division of the ordination sermon found in Matthew 10, and we're going to be discussing five subtopics in this third division And they are on your first page of your lesson number 66. We're going to be looking at the similarity to the Savior, verses 24 and 25, the security of the soul, verses 26 to 31, speech for our speech for the Savior, verses 32 and 33, submission and sacrifices, verses 34 to 39, and then satisfaction for the servant, verses 40 to 42. And if I cover all that, it will truly be a miracle. (laughs) You will have seen a miracle be performed here this morning. (laughs) But let's see how far we get. And whatever I don't cover, it's in the books, all right? And I will try to put it on the tape. When I'm not finishing, I am trying to at least put it all on the cassette tape. All right, let's look at verses 24 and 25 of Matthew 10. This is our similarity to the Savior. Verse 24, Matthew 10. Everybody know where we are? All right. The Lord says the disciple is not above his master nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? 
All right. The warning of the Lord Jesus here is that the disciple is not above his master. No servant is above his Lord. So the disciple or servant of the master and Lord, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus, is not above persecution. He suffered rejection, didn't he, and persecution. So his followers will also, they can expect it, they will also suffer persecution and rejection. In fact, he's telling us we should expect it. We belong to him. All that he is and all that he stands for is what we are and what we stand for. That, therefore, which caused men to hate him and to revile him and to persecute him, the same is in us. Christ is in us, right? If it isn't in us, then we won't be persecuted. But all who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If we're Christ-like, what they hated about him, they're going to hate about us. What did they hate about him? They hated the light in him that, that shined on their darkness. They hated his goodness. They hated the truth he gave them. He hated the conviction that they felt when he was around. All those things they're going to also hate about us. But there's great privilege in suffering for the name of Christ. It's, remember when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord said, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Now, I understand that when we talk about persecution, some of us really can't identify too much with that. Some of you were blessed to even be raised in Christian families. Your parents are saved. You know, maybe your grandparents knew the Lord. All your family's saved. You don't really know what it's like to suffer persecution. But it's coming. It's coming. It's going to get worse and worse. And I know there's little ways in which we suffer that maybe sometimes we don't think about. For example, when I go out there in the world maybe I have a doctor's appointment or something and somebody asks me what do you do do you work do you and I say well nothing I get paid for good for nothing but I do I do teach and I write and they and then oh all of a sudden then I'm worth something because I do a little something so then they say well what do you teach what do you write about the Bible guess what I usually get dead silence they don't pursue the question anymore that's a little you know that's a form of persecution that's a form of rejection, you know. And there's little, those little subtle things that we encounter all the time. But it's going to get worse. The persecution's going to get much worse. But notice the words. I love the words of verse 25 where he starts out saying, it is enough. I underlined that. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. That is reward right there. That is enough reward right there, Jesus is saying. Besides the fact that we are members of the kingdom of heaven and all the hope that awaits us in the next life, yet it is enough that the servant is exalted to the unbelievable height of being as his master and as his Lord. When we are persecuted or scorned or even kind of just ignored for being like Christ, we are walking in the highest and in the most noble company possible because we are walking in the company of God 
to have God's son as our master and Lord is the highest privilege imaginable. A couple weeks ago, I got another Time magazine that had on the cover about all these women that are becoming CEOs of their companies and they're, they're uh, high place executives and they, they're owners of their own company and they're lawyers and they're doctors and all this stuff, you know, movie stars, etc., etc. But did you know that it is far better, it is far better to be a disciple or a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ than to be Condoleezza Rice? Hillary Clinton, uh, <laughs> I won't go into politics, Margaret Thatcher, uh, or any of these CEO women in, you know, in the executive world, to be a high-ranking official of the president's cabinet, or to be a member of some earthly king's court. No higher call exists on planet Earth, in the universe, no higher call exists than to be a servant to the master, the Lord, the creator of the entire universe. Did you ever think about that? Sometimes women always think, well, I'm just a little bitty nobody. I'm just a housewife. Or I just tend to my, my children and my grandchildren. No, 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 no. You are a servant of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there is no higher calling. It is a great and an awesome privilege to live righteously in a world that does not want righteousness. You know, by the simple fact that the world of religion and the world of government and the world even of sometimes close relatives, just by the fact that they react negatively toward us does not do the, away with the fact of our high calling. You know, what? It, remember what it says over in Philippians 3.14? You know, forgetting those things which are behind and pressing forward to those things that, which lay, that lay before we pressed were the mark of the prize of the what? High calling of God in Christ Jesus. You and I have a high calling, the highest calling of all. So next time somebody says, what do you do? Say, I have the highest calling in the universe because I am a servant of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then let them see what they do. <laughs> I guarantee you the conversation will end then. All right, notice the words of verse 25 at the end of the verse. I love the beginning where it says, it is enough. And then look at the end where he says that uh, them of his household... If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Isn't that, isn't that wonderful, too, that we are in, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, you are in the household of God. Isn't that an awesome privilege? Who's your family? Oh, I'm in the family of God. Who's your family? <laughs> Try to beat that. <laughs> we are. We're of the household of God. Um, but with that privilege, with that privilege comes the persecution. Whatever the world did to the master, who was infinitely more wise and more powerful and more righteous than the servants, they would do even more so to the servants. You know, if they had the, um, the what's the word I'm looking for, the bravery to, to say to Jesus Christ, who I'm sure intimidated them 
with all the power he was able, all the miracles he was able to perform, and all the wisdom of his words, every time he refuted them, they were silent because they couldn't refute him. They could never, nobody could ever debate Jesus Christ and win. But if they were willing, if they had the gumption, I can't think of the right word, to fortitude, thank you very much. I can always depend on Mercedes. If they had the fortitude to call him Lord of the filth, Lord of the flies, that's what Beelzebub means. It's another name for Satan, but it literally means Lord of the filth and the flies. Then we, who are not as powerful and not as wise as our master, we, we can expect even more persecution. If they dared call him that, just think what they would call those in his household who weren't as mighty as the master. You know, you have a strong man in the house, and, and somebody comes to the house, they're not going to call maybe him as many names as they would his lowly servants in that house. And those names were coming from the, the righteous, the supposedly righteous crowd. That name, Lord of the Filth and Flies, came from the religious rulers of Israel. Can you imagine what the government rulers and the relatives might say? You know, the, the religious rulers were being kind. So we can expect worse treatment than either, even the way they treated our master. Uh, even though the rejection and the persecution of the disciples of Christ will come in one form or another, the Lord then commanded us not to fear as we go about our work for him, evangelizing and discipling. Let's look at the security of the soul. And for this, uh, well, let me read bit by bit. First of all, I'm going to read verses 26 to 27. In this section, and by the way, this is the most emphasized part of his instructions in this next section, this third section, because he repeats the words, fear not, three times in just these six verses. The verses are 26 to 31. He's really, he's telling us not to fear the rejection, and he gives us three primary reasons as his followers why we do not need to fear our persecutors or our relatives who scorn us or what men can do to us. Three reasons we do not need to fear. First of all, the truth will ultimately triumph. Secondly, the soul matters more than the body. And the third reason is that God is sovereign. God is in control. He still sits on his throne, and he always will. He is sovereign. So let's look at, first of all, the truth will triumph. And this he talks about in verse 26 and 27, where he says, Fear them not, therefore. And he's speaking about those who would persecute them. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light and what ye hear in the ear that preach ye upon the housetops all right first of all truth will triumph at the final judgment the truth is going to be revealed to all those who have in any way done or thought evil to god's people and that's going to include a great big crowd of people the, sh the, sh the disguises of the wolves is going to be taken, removed. The costume is going to be removed. You know, many times wolves like to disguise themselves in sheep's clothing. The cloak 
that the persecutors of, uh, of Christianity have put upon their wickedness will be completely stripped away and the full truth of their evil will be exposed. One day, guaranteed, it will be. The testimonies of all those who have ever, as disciples of Christ, bravely spoken out for him and have consequently been persecuted or scorned or mocked or rejected by their own families, shunned, ostracized, de-synagogued, uh, tortured, um, even martyred, all of them will be vindicated. And then, in that day, their persecution will seem as but a light affliction. Just like, just a slap on the wrist compared to the weight of glory that will be theirs in heaven. There's a special crown for martyrs. Did you know that? All that we suffer here one day will seem like nothing compared to the rewards for those who are faithful to him at the end. Romans 2.16 says that God will one day reveal all the hidden secrets of men's hearts and he will expose them and they will be judged. And they will be judged by the judge who judges perfectly and righteously. There is nothing covered that shall not be revealed. And there's nothing hid that will not be known in that day. So the believer, and that's a little scary thought to think about, too, as far as we are concerned. You know, the eyes of the Lord are on all places. He sees what we do wherever we are, even in our secret closets. He sees us. The believer should, but his point here mainly is that the believer should not allow fear to affect what he says. The disciple is not to try to please men. You might be in a crowd of unbelievers and you just kind of go along with the flow and just just to be accepted by your peers. We're not to fear what men might might think. And we're not to stay closed-lipped in order, uh, you know, so that we would be accepted because we're fearful of what others might say about us or think about us. It says in Proverbs 19.25 that the fear of man brings what? A snare. The fear of man brings a snare. What we hear, what Jesus is saying in verse 27, is that what we hear, what we learn as Christ speaks to us in our prayer closets or in our little devotional time with him, in the quietness of our time alone with him, as he speaks to us through his word, he says, what I tell you in darkness, what ye hear in your ear, he then tells us we are to declare from where? From the rooftops, the housetops. In other words, what he's saying here is what I'm teaching you, what you're learning is an urgent message. The world needs this message. It is to be proclaimed both publicly and clearly so that all might hear it. Go up on your housetops. Now, of course, back in that day, that's where they went. They went up there to eat. They went up there to talk to their neighbors across the house. Wouldn't that be fun? Well, we just live too far spread out to be able to do that. But that's their housetops. They call from, you know, to each other the gospel message. As, as we learned in the Sermon on the Mount, we are not to hide our light under a bushel. We're not to hide the truth under a bushel. Secrecy has no place in the gospel of Christ. 
When somebody tells you they're a secret Christian, that's a red flag right there. We're to be on guard also against any organizations. We're to be on guard against any fraternal orders or lodges or even churches that might use the Lord's name, and yet they engage in secret ceremonies, secret rites. They have secrets. Be aware of lodges, organizations, churches that aren't all out front. And, you know, the light is not afraid of darkness. I'm just warning you, be discerning about any kind of organization that has those little secrets that you don't know until you get in. If you get in and find out, get out. Jesus said, in secret, have I said nothing? He did everything openly and in public. We have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. We have the truth. All right, secondly, he says, um, another reason the disciples not to fear men is because men can only kill what? They can only kill the body. And that is all that they are able to do. And even though that's a very high price to pay, yet the killing of the body merely frees the believer. And many people have suffered and given their body for the sake of Christ. In our generation, people in other countries, probably somebody right now is dying for the cause of Christ somewhere in the world. But that doing that, when the, when the believer is martyred, that merely frees his soul to be with the Lord. Let's look at what the Lord said in verse 28. He says, and here's the second, fear not. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Remember how many times we saw last year that Jesus talked about hell? He talks about hell far more than he ever talks about heaven. And that is because he's warning men over and over again. That is real. It's real. It's real. And he does not want anybody to go there. All right, so here he's saying, don't fear men who can only kill the body. Their power is limited. They cannot touch a person's real being. Where is your real being? Is it in your body? No, your real being is, is your soul. That's your real person. Men can only separate us from life in this world, but they cannot separate us from life because we have already eternal life. If you've asked Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have eternal life. You don't get it when you die. You have it right now. Death is not part of the experience of the believer. Did you, did you ever think about that? Death is not a part of the experience of the believer. We do not have to taste death. We do not have to taste death. Jesus tasted death on our behalf and i cannot imagine what it was like but we are told that in hebrews 2 9 he tasted death for us he was separated from his father he suffered death tasted death for us we have already passed from death to life if you're a christian and you are not in the process of dying don't think of it that way you are in the process of living forever all that really dies is your body. And Jesus never even spoke of it as death. He talked about it as going to sleep. Your, and even your body will be resurrected one day. At the time that we call death for the believer, we merely transfer 
instantly, immediately, we don't taste death. I hope you can get that. I was thinking about this the other night. That's really great. The minute what we call death happens, we merely transfer from this physical world, this physical dimension, right on in instantly into the next world, which is the spiritual dimension of being. For We're not in the process of dying. We're in the process of living, the continual process of living forever. Men can only cut, they, they cannot cut us out of heaven. They can only cut us from this world of, of evil, the den of wolves. And they cannot cut us off from the love of God, can they? You know, Paul said, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature, including myself, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. They can't separate us from any of those things. Now, he gives the remedy. And this, would be, this is very meaningful for people around the world who are being persecuted. I am sure these are some of their favorite verses to be looking at. The remedy for keeping us from fearing men is to have the proper fear of God. To truly fear God is the beginning of wisdom. To understand who God is is to understand that he alone has the power to destroy both body and soul. And by the way, the word, the Greek word for destroy there is uh, apolia in the Greek, which means loss of well-being. It does not mean loss of one's being. In other words, when he says God has the power to destroy both body and soul, he is not talking about annihilation. The person who goes into hell is not annihilated. They're not destroyed. They, they're not, they don't perish in the sense that they don't exist anymore. What he is saying is that they lose any meaning to their existence. Yes, they will exist eternally, but there will be a worthless meaninglessness to their eternal existence. I cannot imagine any worse punishment. Yes, they will also suffer bodily because he will, they also will receive a new body which will suffer in hell forever. But the worst part of hell, I believe, will be that sense of meaninglessness and just worthlessness for all of eternity to have no purpose. And that goes on and on. You know, we have people in this life who when they feel that way, sometimes they just want to take their lives. I have no meaning. I have no purpose. And so sometimes they'll commit suicide. But to think of having that feeling for all of eternity, awful. That's why we need to be proclaiming from the housetops the good news. Fear God, who has the power to destroy both body and soul, not just the body. And even when they destroy the body, as I said, it's only temporary because uh, we will receive new glorified bodies. All right, third point not to fear is given in verses 29 to 31, and that is because God is sovereign. And this is why I have the little birds up here. All right, let's look at verses 29 to 31. He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? meaning without your father's knowledge. But that very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not. That's the third, fear ye not. Therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. 
Uh, okay, that's where I stop. That's the that's um, God is sovereign section. The third reason the disciples not to fear God is because he should know and understand that nothing happens to us that is not fully known by God and ordered by God for his glory and for our own ultimate go, go, uh, good. He cares even for, and I don't think this is a sparrow, is it? Anybody know what kind of bird this is supposed to be? So, whatever it is, pretend it's a sparrow, all right? <laughs> um, he cares even for the common sparrow, we're told here. And he knows when even one of them falls to the ground. And sparrows, back in that day, they're not too valuable today either, but back in that day, they were so invaluable to men that one sold for one-sixteenth of a denarius. That's not a whole lot of money. They were served as a cheap appetizer. Don't invite me to your house if you're going to serve a sparrow on Ritz cracker because I don't think I'll be interested, but they were served as a cheap appetizer. As a matter of fact, over in Luke 12:26, it tells us that sparrows were so cheap that oftentimes the, um, the, uh, the dealer, a sparrow dealer, would throw in another one for free. Here, you buy this one, you get this one free, like Mercedes wanted me to do with the books here. You know, I say, buy one, I'll give you two. <laughs> But but Jesus is telling us a precious truth about God, his father. He is telling us that he is so sovereign that he knows about every single little detail of life, the most minute thing. For example, not only does he know every time a sparrow falls, but he knows how not only how many hairs you have on your head. Do any of you know how many hairs you have on You ever take the time to bother to count them? <laughs> that would be a waste of time. Average head of hair, I found out. Patty, correct me if I'm wrong or any other hairdressers in here. But I learned it was about 140,000 hairs on our heads. But he's saying he has them numbered. So, for example, this is hair number one. This is hair number two. This is hair number three. Okay, and I got to thinking about that, and I really am weird. But I thought, okay, every time I brush my hair or take a, wash my hair or whatever, take a shower, I lose hairs. You do too. We're constantly. So God has to renumber every hair. If I lose this one, I've just lost hair number 777. So then he has to start all over again and renumber. But that's a piece of cake for God because he knows everything and he's omniscient. He's omnipotent. But that's what it's saying. That's getting right down to the hairs on your head, isn't it? as far as God's sovereignty. And this is, like I said, this is precious revelation that Jesus is giving to us about God. It's precious in that it tells us how powerful he is. But it also is precious in that it tells us no matter how small, how forgotten, how seemingly insignificant something might might be, it is very dear to the heart of the Creator. Thus, if the small creatures not made in his image are noticed and are cared for by him, how much more value are those who have obeyed him by believing in his son and willingly following his son, especially those who are willing to take a stand for his son in spite of the rejection, you know, in in the face of opposition and oppression and rejection from your own family, perhaps rejection from your husband. 
You know, that's what he's saying. If he cares when a sparrow falls, and I always think of his eye is on the sparrow. Right, Eleanor? should have had you sing that for us. His eye is on the sparrow, and I know he cares for me. If he cares when a sparrow falls to the ground and knows when the numbers of your head hair changes, which is very frequently, even during the day, then he certainly knows and cares about every hurt inflicted on the believer by persecutors, even to the most minute injury or, you know, feelings hurt, even that insignificant. The believer is not to fear because the truth will eventually be revealed. Men can only hurt the body, not the soul, and God is sovereign. So fear not. Cast all our cares upon him because what? He cares for us. I have to be a little transparent right now because uh, I had a hard time last night. And it was only when I started studying for my lesson this morning that I got that peace that passes all understanding. Because the Lord needed to remind me that if he cares for the sparrows, he cares about every little aspect of our lives. I know some of you have been told in group that our son had just, I've been asking you, praying for you, praying, asking all of you to, Pray that he would get back safely from deployment. He was only supposed to be on deployment in Japan for six months, and he actually turned out to be seven months. And I was so happy last week when he finally got home, I think it was Thursday, and called, and he was back in California um, and got two days at home, and he got a call from the Navy, and they had to fly him. They said, you're going back to Hawaii because there's a plane down. And they picked him because he's the only single guy in the squadron. And all the other people were so happy to be back with their wives and their children, etc. So I thought that was kind of prejudiced. Told him it's another reason he needs to get married. But anyway, um, so he's, they sent him back to Hawaii. And then yesterday afternoon, he called and he said, more bad news. Not only are they, am I here in Hawaii, but now they've called me and told me I've got to go all the way back to Guam which is almost all the way back to Japan, and pick up a broken plane, which was having a problem with the fuel tank. And he has to come back in that plane all the way back to California, which would entail, this is a single-engine fighter plane, you know, Hornet. There's only one guy in it, and that would mean he'd have to refuel in the air 15 times, if you ever know what that entails. You fly with the tanker, and it puts out the hose, and you got to come up real close to it and get the gas, and if the gas leaks, you could blow up and all that kind of stuff. But as a mother, I'm thinking, I was so happy to get him here. So I'm telling you God's work, word is powerful because this is the only thing that helped me last night is that I know God is sovereign. And I still do covet your prayers. All right. Let's move on now. Verses 32 and 33. And I don't need to fear either, right? <laughs> Three dives. Don't fear, don't fear, don't fear. All right. Verses 32 and 33. These are serious verses. He says, uh, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. This is talking about one's speech for the Savior. To confess means more than just to make a statement with one's lips about the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess involves agreement. In other words, it's to agree with a truth and to identify with it. Now, a lot of people can move their lips to say that they believe in Jesus. 
That doesn't take a lot. Yes, I believe in Jesus. They just move their lips and say it. But they have not surrendered to him in their hearts and in their wills. It involves a life that backs up one's confession. Um, the walk and the talk must go together. We all know that. So another hallmark of, of true discipleship is open confession. And this fits in with what we just discussed, that a disciple will not fear proclaiming his message of Christ from the housetops. He will not fear men's rejection or what might, men might do to his body. He will confess Christ before men. Now, there's no doubt that in one sense, what the Lord Jesus was saying here was a warning to unbelievers. You can take these verses and you can show them to unbelievers. Because denying Christ is absolutely, no doubt about it, the most dangerous thing that a person can do. And why is that? Well, it's because there is coming a day when every person who has ever lived will need Christ to confess him or her before God. Every person will need Jesus to do that one day. But if a person has not confessed Jesus Christ during this lifetime, bad news is that Christ will con not confess him or her before his heavenly Father. He has forewarned all men about that here in his word. He has foretold what he will do. He will be forced to deny that person who has not confessed him before men who's not willing to take a stand for what they believe in Jesus Christ, a life that backs up what they say with their lips. And he will be forced to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Yet, we can say that. We can say that we can use these verses for unbelievers and that, in a sense, he was warning unbelievers. But remember, the ordination sermon primarily was spoken to who? Directly spoken to his apostles and, all, and for all believers on down through the church age. So there's more involved here in the Lord's statement than the issue of heaven and hell. The truth of the matter is that there are occasions in our lives, I know this to be true because it's true in my life, I know it's true in all of our lives, when we deny Christ. There are occasions where we can deny him by our words, such as Peter, Remember when Peter denied the Lord Jesus three times on the night of his arrest? We can deny him by our actions, by what we do that we shouldn't do, or what we don't do that we should do. And we can deny him by our silence, which is probably the one that most of us are, are most guilty of. Remember, Timothy had to be admonished by the Apostle Paul to not be ashamed of, his, of the testimony of the Lord. That's in 2 Timothy 1.8. So Peter denied the Lord. Timothy was kind of at times ashamed of the Lord. All of us have our moments where we don't speak up and we, we remain silent when we know we shouldn't. But neither Peter nor Timothy lost their salvation. They didn't lose their salvation. You cannot lose your salvation once it's genuine. You can't lose it. They didn't lose their salvation because of their moments of fear and, and denial. All of us will encounter those times. But the Lord forgives us when we confess those times of weakness. This will not be the normal attitude or the normal behavior pattern of a true disciple. However, if such behavior is the normal pattern of a person's life, 
then these verses are the Lord's warning that that person will be denied by, by Jesus Christ not at the judgment seat of Christ. See, if you're a true follower of Jesus, but the pattern of your life is that you always keep quiet when you shouldn't, he's not going to de- deny you at the judgment seat when he'll, he'll say, depart from me. He won't say, depart from me, if you're truly his sheep and you truly are saved. But his warning here is that he will deny you at the Bema seat, which is the reward seat, the judgment seat of Christ. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians 5.10 or Romans 14.10, where the rewards, the crowns, are, are distributed to true believers. If an individual denied Christ by being silent and being inactive and being ashamed of Christ, you know, that type of a Christian, he will be denied rewards. And the joy of hearing Christ say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So that is what he primarily is warning us about in that, in that section. All right, quickly, we're almost through. Let's look at verse 34 to 39. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. I couldn't believe it because our pastor's message yesterday here in this church was exactly on this passage. I'm going, oh, whoa, this is neat. All right. It says, for I am come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Why is that? Go back up to verse 25. If you came from a non-Christian family, you have changed your household membership. From, God, from your household to God's household. I just thought it was interesting that both times we have the word household mentioned. So those of, of your unsaved household, if that's your situation, will not be too happy about your change of household. That was redundant, but anyway, you get my point. Verse 37, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter. Get that, mothers? He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross, first time in the Gospels, the word cross is mentioned. He that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Um, Yeah, I'm supposed to read verse 39 too. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. All right, if you have to go, you can get up and go, but I want to quickly cover this because this is, to me, it's very important, this passage. When Jesus said that he did not come here to send peace on earth, but a what? A sword. What in the world did he mean? What did he mean by that? You know, he's the prince of peace. The angels at his birth said, you know, peace on earth. What did he mean? Well, for one thing, he meant that he did not come to give his approval and his sanction and his blessing to this corrupt, sinful, decaying, um, uh, Christ, God-rejecting, cursed earth. He did not come to give his peace or his blessing to a world that is in the process of dying. What he came to do was bring a sword to this earth. He came to war against sin. He came to war against the corruption, the curse, the decay, and death of this world. He would never give God's peace or God's blessing to a world so full of rebellion against God and so full of cursing and blasphemy and so full of selfishness. Would he? 
Would he give his blessing and peace to a world like that? No, he wouldn't. Now, he would give his peace to those who individually accept him, but not to the world. He didn't come to the world to give peace. Now, if Israel had accepted him as her Messiah, he would have brought in the kingdom of peace. But they rejected him, and he didn't bring in that kingdom. It's important to understand that it's Jesus who causes the division. Understand that. Not only when, you know, his word is like a two-edged sword. It cuts right through. His, he, he not only gives division to us individually, because once he, we accept him, we have a war going on within us. Did you realize that? My old man is constantly struggling against my, my new man. Last night, I was having a big struggle between my flesh and my spirit. So, but not only does he cause a division within, but he ca- causes division without of us also, because then we are at war. We're in a, a spiritual warfare with the world. He calls a person out of this world and separates him from the world so that he or she can then do his part to bring others out of this world. The worst experience of the Christian, no doubt about it, the worst experience is to be opposed by those of your own family. And I know of what I speak. I was the first one in my family to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. My father, my mother rejected me. My father didn't talk to me for nine years. He kept my mother from me. My brother and sister still don't really have anything to do with me. My sister doesn't talk to me. I know what it's like to have your family reject you. And man, does it hurt. I know also what it's like to have an unsaved husband. I can identify with you in that. He is saved now by the glory of God, the grace of God. But I can identify nothing, nothing hurts worse. But believers are to to love God more than anything. And that means more than your own families. He is to be first and foremost. If, If a man or a woman or a young person loves his or her family so much that he turns from Christ. He hears the truth, but he's not willing to face the rejection of his family. Uh, Or when, when they allow their family to keep them from serving God and doing what they should by being a disciple of Christ, then they are making the family the supreme love of their lives. Now, that's not to say, of course, we don't love our family, but in comparison, it's almost like hate in, in, in comparison because we are to love the Lord our God with what? All our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. Every true disciple of... And remember I told you discipleship has a price. Every true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ will put submission to Christ above submission to men and family. Sacrifice is definitely involved. He says, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. The disciples didn't know about his cross, but they did know what a cross meant. They knew about the Roman form of crucifixion. Therefore, they understood that he was telling them that they had to love him even more than they loved their own lives. Bearing one's cross is not putting up with a handicap. It's not putting up with a nagging mother-in-law. You know, some people will say, well, I'm bearing my cross because I've got this sickness or this whatever, this thorn in my flesh. They, that was totally a foreign concept to the original listeners of this sermon. Bearing one's cross, those apostles understood, meant that you'd be willing to die for what you, what you believe. 
And then he went on to say that there will be no sacrifice, however made, even death, that can compare with what will be received from him. He that findeth his life shall lose it. In other words, the person who wants to cling to their life and their creature comforts and their um, pleasures and their big homes and this and that, and, and they want to have their life for themselves, the selfish believer will really lose in the end. But the one who's willing, this doesn't always ask us to, he just says to be willing to give. Remember what the, the um, martyr Jim Elliot said? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You want to really find your life? Serve Christ. Be a, his disciple. You will find your life. You will have that meaning. You will have that purpose. And it will be, oh, so worth it. So I know my kids all their childhood said, Mom, you don't have a life. You don't have a life. All you do is study, study, study. You don't have a life. Because I didn't have time to do other things. But I have the best life of all. I love the high calling of serving God in Christ Jesus. I'm telling you, it's true. If you want meaning and purpose in your life, be a living sacrifice for him. And then the last section, he tells us that even the smallest ministry for the Lord will be rewarded. Even a cup of water to a a servant of, of the Lord will be rewarded.